There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Unheard, I'm Freddie Sayers. We're at day seven of the conflict in Ukraine and we're still trying to work out exactly what is going on. There's almost an eerie atmosphere that it hasn't fully got going yet. In order to help us understand that and why that might be, we're joined this morning by Justin Bronk. Uh, he is a research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and is a specialist 
in military science and air power in particular. Hi, Justin. Good morning. Is it fair then, would you agree that even though we're on day seven, there's a sense that the majority of the Russian military might, in particular their air force, simply hasn't yet been used? Why is that? It's certainly true that the majority of their their air force uh, has so far basically sat on the ground uh, in this conflict, which is is quite surprising. Um, there's a few reasons why that might be, but it is also worth noting that on the ground side of things, the uh, initial picture where we had essentially very very poorly coordinated uh, columns of Russian forces as well as uh, sort of advanced assaults by um, paratroopers being inserted by helicopters. Um, which went dreadfully uh, for the Russians, um, and that was supposed to kind of reinforce uh, an internal decapitation attempt against the Ukrainian government by infiltrated special forces and, and operatives. That didn't work, um, but we are seeing a shift with a lot more of Russian ground combat power now engaged. About 80% of their forces of massed around Ukraine have crossed the border, according to US intelligence. Um, and we're starting to see a lot of bombardment of cities, particularly Kharkiv uh, in the north and uh, down south. Uh, Mariupol, Melitopol and Kherson. Um, although around Kiev, they're still pausing and building up. Basically, the Russian ground forces started off um, going in, uh, sort of basically assuming they weren't going to have to fight their way into the cities. But that now is changing. We're, we're, um, we're likely to see the way the Russian army actually fights um, as, it, as it kind of would intend to uh, over the next few days. What do you mean by that, the, the way the Russian army actually fight? This is this thing that people refer to, that they're sort of habits in Syria, places like Aleppo and Homs, where they would literally flatten entire neighbourhoods of cities. Are we actually expecting that in Ukraine? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, the Russian army is very much uh, an artillery and firepower based force. Um, they don't really have the level of, of training, professionalism, exercise opportunities to uh, take what we might call a manoeuvrist approach to warfare, where you're, you're trying to basically exploit um, movement and, and, and you know, dynamically shape the battle space that way as much as with firepower. So something like the US Army, for example, or the British Army in its heyday would 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 have done that. The Russians tend to do a much more set piece approach to warfare. They line up, line up in these what they call battalion tactical groups, which are groups of about a thousand troops, um, each with, with all the kind of enablers they need, tanks, armored personnel carriers, artillery, electronic warfare, air defense. Um, and then they kind of push forward until they run out of steam and then the next battalion tactical group will kind of go past them. Um, we haven't seen that up to now. What we've seen instead is, is sort of these weird, almost unsupported in many cases, columns um, going forward on the roads, trying to rapidly encircle the cities, um, it, you're really clearly not expecting a fight and also clearly with very little actual time to plan. It looks like the Russian military was given very, very short notice of actually moving to combat operations. And so there's been very little coordination that is starting to change. So while the Ukrainians have seen magnificent success in many cases, and they're showing extraordinary resistance. Um, they haven't really faced the Russian military how it would plan to fight. And unfortunately, particularly around Kiev, what we're seeing is this pause, this large scale build up with these huge columns coming towards Kiev. Um, the Russian army is sort of drawing itself up to actually fight how it would intend to fight if it you know, was facing resistance. Which There's it is. talk of a column that's 40 miles long. Is, is that credible? And how many yep. troops would that include, roughly? 
So, I mean, there are uh, tens of thousands of troops um, being pushed through in these long columns. The slow pace um, and the kind of traffic jam nature of it indicates a relatively poor planning and poor logistics on the part of the Russians, but also perhaps is an indicator of one of the factors we're seeing across the board on the ground, which is very poor morale around, uh, among Russian troops. They don't seem to really want to be there. They don't seem to want to fight. They don't really know what's going on. Um, at the kind of tactical level. What's the evidence for that? Because people talk about that quite often. What actual hard evidence is there of low Russian morale? So there's a few ones. First of all, um, there's there's plenty of, uh, there's a very high number of prisoners being taken uh, in the first few days. Um, and there's a pretty consistent narrative among those prisoners saying, yeah, we didn't know we were going into combat. We, we don't really know what we're doing here. We haven't had any communications. We were supposed to be on exercise. There's also been a huge amount of Russian uh, equipment, including some really quite modern and up-to-date heavy armor and things that have just been abandoned um, by their crews. They haven't run out of fuel. They've just been abandoned. Um, and so Ukrainian civilians in many cases are kind of taking it upon themselves to either burn or capture this stuff. But that's not that's not something you'd see in an army with with, you know, decent morale. Um, and, you know, the, the general kind of level of aggression you'd expect to see from Russian forces based on their performance in previous conflicts isn't really there except for a few specialist units, the paratroopers, the special forces and the, the sort of Chechen um, units, which, for example, around Kherson yesterday seem to have made a lot of progress. Um, but for the majority of Russian forces, not much morale. They don't seem to want to really be there. So tell us about this Air Force mystery, because they have a large Air Force, right? Give us a sense of the numbers of aircraft involved in the, the Russian Air Force. I mean, it's, it's much, much bigger than the Ukrainian force, right? Yeah, so the, the Russian Air Force has massed uh, around 300, slightly over about 310 um, modern combat aircraft around Ukraine. A lot of those uh, are part of the southern and military, southern and western military districts, so the two military districts around uh, that surround Ukraine anyway. Um, so that the, a lot of it's the kind of standing force there, but they've also moved squadrons in from uh, well regiments in their case. And what would what would Ukraine have by way of comparison? Uh, so Ukraine started off with between you know, around thirty or so MiG 29s so uh, relatively old um, short range air superiority machines, um, and about twenty or so Sukhoi 27s. They've probably lost about half that, um, both in the ground and in the air. Um, they also had a, a small number of uh, Suko-25 um, ground attack jets, uh, of which they've certainly lost one or two. Um, we don't really know, at least I don't really know what the, the, the status is on the remaining ones. So we're talking, about, we're talking about vastly, vastly outnumbered. Yeah, very outnumbered. But Ukraine does have a reasonable number of medium and short range mobile surface to air missile systems. We would say SA-11, uh, uh, SA-15, one or two, and SA-8. Those still seem to be active, although they, they're operating as a sort of pop-up threat. Um, their long range surface to air missiles, some, some old uh, S-300 batteries um, seem to have been destroyed uh, pretty early on, or at least uh, heavily degraded by those initial Russian cruise missile strikes. So this is seems to be the biggest mystery of this whole war so far. We're admittedly only a week into it. You've got a vast Russian air force, and then you have this relatively small Ukrainian air force. Why did the Russians not just assume air superiority and control the skies from day one? This is a huge a huge um, mystery in the sense of not only why didn't they do it on day one, haven't they done it since then? Um, it essentially, typically you'd expect to see in, a, in any modern war um, whoever it's fought by, really, you would expect to see exactly what we saw initially, which is a standoff bombardment with cruise missiles and, and ballistic missiles to kind of blind those early warning radars. And that means taking out the radar system in the country you're trying to invade. 
Yeah, so uh, Ukraine had a number of ground-based long-range uh, radars, so they would be, be kind of creating that big picture um, uh, to direct the rest of the Air Force operations and the, the surface-to-air missiles. The Russians took almost all of those out on the in the first couple of hours with standoff missile strikes, um, which is exactly what we'd expect to see. They also um, dropped, you know, hit a number of air bases and, and uh, long-range missile systems with uh, strikes. But we didn't then see this this expected follow-up large-scale air raids to wipe out the Ukrainian air force on the on the ground um, as it was then blinded and in some cases probably uh, temporarily trapped by crater taxiways and things, um, and with fighters to kind of sweep up any air force you know Ukrainian air force jets that did manage to take off that would then be sort of basically flying blind. Um, we didn't see this. Um, the only explanation I can I can really come up with that fits everything in my head on the, on the first day is that basically they were given too little warning, which would fit with the uncoordinated nature of the ground attack and what we're hearing from a lot of prisoners that they you know that this was supposed to be on exercise they had almost no warning. You can't spin up an air force for complex strike operations in a couple of hours. Um, it's not just that aircraft need to be armed up. Um, it's also that all the maintenance schedules need to be brought together and optimized so you have everything ready for, for kind of go time. Um, and you also have to do loads and loads of flight planning, mission planning, uh, plan how, for example, you're going to deconflict your Air Force operations with your ground-based um, surface-to-air missiles so that you don't get friendly fire, um, how all of the timings are going to work together so that aircraft don't run into each other while striking, particularly at night. All of this stuff doesn't seem to have been done, and it may be that they just didn't have enough time um, to, to do this when we started. Just to push back on that, if I may, it just seems a little bit strange. I mean, we had weeks of talk of this imminent invasion. We had the, the military's been building up for months. Putin made his speech in advance. It, the whole thing seems to have progressed at quite a stately pace. doesn't seem rushed. Why would they not have had enough time? So it, it, it's likely, I think, that um, the, the, this is a result of the Russian kind of determination to stick with the playbook that they clearly had, had brought up at the strategic level, which US intelligence and in fact, UK intelligence as well was very active in, in kind of basically briefing to everybody um, for in the weeks running up to the invasion. Um, and yet the Russians kind of seem to have stuck with it, which was, this isn't an invasion, we're not going to invade, this is Western hysteria. In the meantime, try and stir up and create these sort of fake provocations, atrocities and all this sort of stuff in, in eastern Donbass, um, in the occupied territories, uh, and then kind of go in as a sort of un under the pretense as a peacekeeping force. Um, this, this, you know, they just kind of stuck to this. And although it didn't, as you say, it didn't really fool many people, um, in certainly in the military intelligence community uh, in the West, they seem to have, in their determination to stick to this weird series of denials right to the last minute, not briefed the real plan down to the sort of tactical unit level in their own military until very, very late. Um, I guess because they're concerned that that would be picked up and leaked, partly perhaps because of these sort of consistent US intelligence report releases. Um, you know, they may have been paranoid about how penetrated their system was. Um, and so yeah, maybe it does appear that a lot of the Russian units really didn't get much warning at all that they were moving from these supposed exercises and training deployments to combat operations. I mean, I guess there's a political explanation, which is not your area of expertise so much, which, which might be an alternative, which is that they don't want to bombard heavily whole regions of cities because the whole political imperative is that they're supposed to be our Russian brothers that we're coming to rescue, therefore they don't want to wipe out 
whole cities and they might not be keenness within the military or within the political arms to do that. So maybe the reticence is less about competence and more about unwillingness to take that step. Uh, it's certainly the case that uh, the, the Kremlin was banking on a relatively clean, relatively quick win. Um, and they were the, the plan was to um, use these infiltrated forces, of which they had quite a few, um, you know, a couple of companies worth in, in Kiev, as, for example, and as well as throughout the country. They've had years of, of low-level fighting with Ukraine and plenty of time to infiltrate with their, their military and, and uh, foreign, of, you know, foreign ministry um, operatives and things. They were counting on being able to assassinate kind of key resistance figures, including Zelensky, um, and uh, basically push up a lot of pro-Russian elements within the Ukrainian state framework that are there um, and basically hope that they could create at least chaos at best, um, a sort of more more um, friendly regime in Kiev uh, and, and in the regions so that their troops could basically walk in and take over and set up a system of, of kind of basically repression, but, but fronted by Ukrainians, not Russians. Because that didn't happen, they're now faced with the issue that they they have to fight their way into the cities and they've encountered much stiffer resistance than they think. So while they certainly didn't set out with the plan to you know bombard and destroy Ukrainian cities, um, unfortunately, particularly as we're seeing at the moment in Kharkiv, you know, which is under very heavy bombardment and has been for a couple of days, and this is a predominantly Russian-speaking um, part of the country. You know, it's one of the areas where there were counter-protests when Yanukovych fell back in 2014. They're certainly prepared, unfortunately, yeah, and, and I think we're going to see it more and more in the coming days to do this, to, to really level places, because they're all in now. They've taken these incredible amounts of economic sanctions, huge political isolation. They've burned all of their soft power influence networks. They're going to have massive economic problems um, over the next year or so. So for the Kremlin, it's not enough to go, oh, well, the plan didn't work. I guess we'll go back to the start lines. They need victory. So so there's, there's one more thing I'd love to, to get your expertise on, which is I want to show one, one video of something that circulated a lot, which is this strike in the uh, centre of Kharkiv, in the, the, the main square. And this has been referred to as evidence that they are now bombarding residential areas. Any pretense that they're only making military targets is out the window, and the kind of heavy Homs or Aleppo-style bombardment has started. But from what I could see on this video, that, that wasn't evidence of that. The missile seems to miss the big government building in Freedom Square in Kharkiv. It sort of takes a tiny bit of the corner of the roof off and lands squarely in the pavement in front of it. In your opinion, could that just be incompetence or a sort of missed target? Or is it more likely that they meant to hit exactly that place? I'm fairly sure they intended to hit the building square on. Um, Cruise missiles are generally speaking, particularly older ones like the uh, like the one in the video, um, use sort of GPS equivalent, so GLONASS in their case. Um, and that's accurate to kind of to, you know, a few meters, tens of meters um, in their case. And so, you know, it, this is within rough accuracy expectations. Um, they, they'll have put the coordinates in for that building, but the precise impact point, as you say, is slightly in front of it. This TV tower that's been dominating the headlines this morning, um, almost every front page talks about how they have hit the TV tower, but the video doesn't really seem to show that. It just seems 
slightly odd, doesn't it? That if we these are the two big, most publicised strikes on the big symbolic targets. We've got the main government regional office in Kharkiv. We've got the TV tower, the tallest structure in Kiev, and both of them are misses, or at least they don't take them down. So you know, either that they're just not very good, or they didn't mean to hit them. So they did mean to hit them, but they're, they're basically Russia's cruise missile. I mean, any cruise missile, but particularly Russia's ones, they're about 10 years, 15 years behind the kind of latest equivalent Tomahawks or whatever from the from the US side. Um, they don't give you that that real precision. They allow you to hit roughly on a grid square, but it's not enough to kind of target key points on a building. Or, for example, we've seen in the latest strikes on air, air bases, they've mostly missed the runways. Um, because they don't have kind of, for example, uh, infrared seekers that will do the kind of final home in on a particular bit. Uh, and this is partly why it's so weird that they haven't employed the air forces yet, because in any mean, you know, major way, because air forces do give you that much more um, precision, that ability to target specific areas. Um, even with unguided weapons, you get a more precision than a cruise missile from distance. And also compared to the US, Russia has a lot of, you know, a lot of missiles, but they've fired you know, more than 400 so far. And that's quite a significant chunk of their inventory. They can't just keep lobbing cruise missiles. And unfortunately, as in Kharkiv, we're going to continually see an increase towards rocket artillery and conventional artillery, as well as potentially the Air Force in, in coming days, because their cruise missiles just aren't. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Accurate enough to do really surgical strikes, as you've shown in the two clips here. And they don't have enough of them anyway to accomplish their goals now um, by force. So unfortunately, we're going to see a lot more artillery coming. Justin Bronk, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you to Justin Bronk from the Royal United Services Institute, sharing some of his expertise there on the Russian military capability and trying to understand what seems to be the big mystery of this war so far. We're now on day seven and the might of the Russian military machine has not yet been in evidence. Whether that is a political decision, whether it's some other kind of tactic, or whether, as Mr. Bronx suggested, it's actually to do with capability and coordination remains to be seen, and I guess we will see in the coming days. Thanks to him, and thanks to you for joining. This was Unheard. Unheard.